Well, I want to finish this uh, real quickly, dovetails with what Keith said today. I just really went over it really fast. I want to just give us a quick, and there's a couple of verses I want us to look at, but uh, let's look at the last thing we talked about. Does everybody have last week's lesson? Everybody has it? I just want to just uh, five minutes, aha, uh-huh. but uh, real quickly uh, go over this concept of uh, verse 27 through 31. I'm not even going to uh, reiterate what we talked about last week because I uh, really want to see how much of the true vine uh, seventh I am I can do uh, today. Uh, 1427, Jesus telling his disciples before he goes to the cross, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled. This is 1427, John. Neither let it be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away and coming back. If you loved me, you would rejoice. Because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now I've told you before it comes, that when it comes, that you may believe. I'll no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father. As the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. So we see, as, as uh, uh, just want to camp out on verse 27 a bit, Jesus says to his troubled disciples who he knows they're about to go through difficult times. They're going to go through separation. They're going to go through anxiety and fear. They're going to be martyred for the faith. They're going to be despised and rejected like the Master was. Uh, He gives them this word, and this word is peace. Uh, uh, We know peace from Hebrew is shalom. Uh, and this peace is different than the peace that Jesus is talking about. This peace in shalom is more of an absence of hostility. It may be how we define it in today's modern culture. You know, Scripture says everybody wants peace, peace, but the Lord says sudden destruction is coming. But this peace, shalom, is going to be a little different from the, what the, uh, the, the, uh, the apostles and the disciples had known before. He changes the word to the Greek word, and he changes it to arene. And uh, this arena uh, primary uh, concept is what we talked about. This just very briefly is reconciliation. So this peace that Jesus is giving is 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 passing on to his disciples is not. You're not going to have any trouble, my friends. You're not going to have. Your life is going to be easy, peaches and cream. He's saying just like Keith said this morning. I'm giving you this rest in the circumstances. And despite the circumstances, so he leaves them with this, ver- with this verse, Peace I leave to you, Irene, because you have been reconciled to the Godhead. And this word uh, is emphasized that we have this peace as we have this reconciliation. And that occurs through the blood of Christ. And the verses, the prototypical verses for this are in Ephesians and in Romans, and we see it in Romans. If you'll turn to Romans real quick, uh, we see that Jesus says, Peace I give to you. He's talking about reconciliation, not an absence of conflict, not an absence of trouble, but this tranquil, internal emotion of the Spirit that cannot be thwarted, that cannot be overruled, but it is a peace that comes through the blood of Christ, that when we stand before our Father, when we stand before Christ, 
in judgment. We have nothing to fear because our sins have been taken away. They have been covered. We have been reconciled. We have been redeemed. Sins remembered no more. Declared righteous. So Jesus tells his disciples, it's going to be tough. You're going to suffer. You're going to die in the faith. But you have been reconciled to me. And he gives them this peace. That's when he says, not as the world gives peace. The peace says, the only thing that's peaceful is when you're not fighting. But Jesus says, I give you peace though you die. You have peace because you've been reconciled to me by grace through faith, through my blood that I shed for you. Who's got Romans 5, 1 through 4? And the emphasis is on the peace because of the work of Christ, which we remembered again today at the table. Who's got Romans 5, 1 through 4? Therefore, having been justified by faith through the Holy Spirit, he has given to us. Great verse. Because of the love of God, we've been declared righteous by the work of Christ. We have been reconciled to God. We have hope and glory. And we can... We can exalt even in persecution, disciples, because you've been reconciled to me. So that is the, the text verse. There's other verses there. And then if you'll turn to Ephesians 2, somebody read Ephesians 2, uh, 14 through 17 again. Similar thinking, similar terminology. Jesus says, my peace I leave with you. My peace not as the world gives you that word. I leave with you speaks of the permanence of it. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a permanent reconciliation that cannot be changed, altered, or be done away with. I leave with you. There's a permanence to it. It's present. It's now. It is future. And it is forever. And Jesus leaves it with His disciples. And He uh, conversely, leaves it to us if we have been reconciled. Who's got Ephesians two fourteen through seventeen? Okay. In this context, we have the Jew and the Gentile joined together in one, both access to God through the work of Christ, and we have peace, and we have hope through Him. We have access to the Spirit. We have this peace. Jesus gives it to his disciples, Jewish people. He's later going to spread it out to the church as the church era begins after his ascension and after the coming of Pentecost. So just wanted to emphasize that again a little better than I did last week as time was running out. Peace I leave to you, not as the world gives peace, I leave to you, and you're going to be in a permanent state of peace positionally. There may be practical days when we don't sense the peace. There may be days when we, as Key said today, have to we have to conjole our souls to find peace and, and rethink and, and think towards the Lord. But He has given us this permanent position of peace by the blood of Christ. So we see that. And then I wanted to uh, uh, talk about this verse, verse 30. I will no longer be with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. What does he mean when Jesus says the ruler of this world is coming? And then he says, and if you have room to write this in your notes, you can. But he says this ruler of the world has nothing in me. What does this mean? The ruler of this world is coming. What's he talking about? Satan is the ruler of this world. 
And he is talking about the spiritual conflict in this war that's going to be finished at the cross. He's talking about the peace and the love that's going to kiss. And he's talking about mercy and truth that are going to meet at the cross. He's talking about the justice of a holy God being met by the sacrifice of a holy Savior. And he's saying, the, the ruler of this world has come and he said, there's going to be, a, a, this, the struggle is ended. The ruler of the prince of this power of the world who holds sway over mankind is going to be defeated at the cross. Testelestai, it is finished. I have finished the work I've come to do. I have reconciled men to myself. Sin is defeated and death is defeated. Satan is coming against me. This war will be over. It will be finished forever. The ruler of this world is coming. He's always wanted to thwart God's plan. From Genesis 3 to the Revelation, he wants to thwart God's plan. He's tried to do it through Judas Iscariot. He's tried to do it through Peter's uh, denial. He tries to do it in various sundry ways. Jesus says, the ruler of this world is coming, and I am going to defeat him and to destroy him. And his works and his power and his final victory is going to be over death, and it's coming. And he has nothing in me basically means... I am sinless. He has no accusations against me. And because he has no accusations against me, when I die for my people, he will have no accusations against them either. So the accuser of the brethren may accuse us all he wants, but because of Christ, we have been reconciled and we have been declared righteous positionally, and we are becoming more and more righteous practically every day. One day we will be glorified, death will be finished, and we will no longer have a sin nature. Satan is coming, but he has nothing in me. I am sinless. A verse that you have to know, if you are to share truth, if you are to help yourself in thinking, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we may become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We have been imputed sin of Christ. I mean, our sin has been credited to His account and His sinlessness, perfection, His righteousness has been debited to our account and they balance out and the transaction has been made. We are in Christ and we are we are considered righteous by a holy God. Does everybody understand that? And some verses for this, if, if you're writing these down, uh, he had spoke of this earlier. Uh, 1231, John, and, uh, and also uh, uh, 1611. Let's look at these verses. This will give you some uh, clue what I just described real quickly. Uh, 12. 31 John, when Jesus said, the ruler of this world is coming, uh, he's talking about this. Uh, uh, look at 1231. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all types of people to myself. So we see this, the great conflict is, is over Christ is one, Satan is cast out of heaven, metaphorically speaking, and he has no more power or authority over his God's people. We have been transferred from kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Hallelujah, huh? Hallelujah. So he's been defeated. And we see that also in 16, 
1611. Speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit, which we'll get into next week, Lord willing. The Holy Spirit's work of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And that's talking about Satan and all of the uh, ruin he's put on this earth, the accusations against the brethren, and he's the father of lies, and he's the root of all evil, and he's been judged, and he's been found guilty, and his judgment is, and his final consequence is set, and so we see that, because he has no sin, Christ has no sin. And another verse for this one, great verse, if you're looking to write these down, I'd encourage you, 720. 5 and 26, 26, 27 of Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews 7, talking about the sinless perfection of Christ, this lamb offered before the foundation of the world without, lamb, without blot, without blemish. Uh, Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, Talking about the high work, the work of the high priest Jesus Christ for the for His people, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who doesn't need daily as those high priests offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For thus he did once for all when he offered up himself. And so we see this great mediatorial work. And then uh, if you'll just go back a few pages to Hebrews 2.14, another verse that is uh, speaks of Christ's uh, finished work over Satan. 2.14 Hebrews, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise shared in the same, speaks of his incarnation as our representatives, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So we see Christ's work as a human, as a man, as he reconciled us to himself through his perfect righteousness, he destroyed the power of death. And the, we see Paul say the last enemy that is defeated is death. And we see that in the great resurrection chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just wanted to, to touch up on those verses uh, real quickly. And then he says, come let us go from here. It seems like the rest of this discourse is still in the upper room. So when he says let us go from here, perhaps he's just intimating that we're going to leave here in a few minutes, but I have something else to say to you. It doesn't matter. He could have been walking and talking to him while he said this. They could have left the upper room. Uh, regardless, he still has much to tell them in the few, few remaining hours that he has. So uh, we won't squabble about what that means if, if they actually left the room or if they walked or uh, what they did. But uh, that's really irrelevant to the depth of what we just said, whether or not they got up and walked or sat there. Now, the last thing he says to the disciples before he prays for them is he gives them the seventh I am. Seven is a number of completeness as he completes his explanation that he's deity, that he's Christ. These things I have said to you that you may believe that in Christ and have eternal life through him. And we've looked at the... Uh, the seven I am's. And what was the first one? I'm going to check your memory. I am what? You're fixing to do it at 12 o'clock. Bread. 
I'm the bread of life. I am the second I am. Light. This is in 6. This is 635, if my memory is correct. Light. I am the light of the world. 812. The third I am is what? I am the door. This is in 10.1. I am the good shepherd. And I believe that's 10. 10, 10, huh? 11 and 14. I'm impressed. Did you read that or did you know that? Five. He's the what? He's the good, he's the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the what? He's the resurrection. And he's the life. What's the sixth one? He's the way. Not a way. He's the way. And he's the reality. And he is the source of life. And then lastly, he is the true vine. And we are the branches. And the Father is the vine dresser. So as we look at this seventh I am, we see the totality of who Christ is as deity as he explains to the disciples so that we would be able to have bullets to evangelize. This whole book is about believing who Jesus is. He's God and he is man. He's Jesus uh, man and he is the anointed one, Christ the Messiah. And we are to tell people about who He is, and this is our ammunition kit to share truth with people as He explains Himself in totality. So He says, I am the true vine. Now, the true is the authentic, the real, the only real. And and, and what He does is, is Jesus is so, as the Master Teacher... What he does is he applies life in his teaching. He applies things that can be related to. He speak, always speaks to, to people on their level to comprehend when he's doing these things. So he talks to these disciples in imagery and in a metaphor that has gone on from the Old Testament on. So the disciples would not freak out or they would not go, huh, when he talks about being a vine. They understand this imagery. This imagery has been going on since the Old Testament days. And, and, and so we see this, and I don't have some of these. I've changed uh, when Melanie typed this for me yesterday. I, I sort of changed my thinking, so... Uh, I'm gonna, you're gonna have to add some of these for me. So when he says he's a true vine, this is the imagery he's using to communicate principles. And then in this, I am the true vine. My husband is a, my father is the vine dresser. And when he talks about his father, uh, gonna be cutting out the dead branches and pruning the, the good branches, we're gonna talk about the difference between real Christians and, and Christians who are uh, professing Christians only. And we're going to talk about this in a second. But he says, I'm the authentic, I'm the real, I'm the only real. I am the, I am the branch and I am the root of the stem of Jesse. I am the source 
of life. I am the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And so he is the root, and that's the uh, Isaiah uh, uh, 11. Correct me on that if, if I think he's the root and the stem of Jesse. He is the, he is the, uh, he's the Isaiah 9, 6. He is, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the Handel song, and, and help me with it, I'm having a brain hiccup. That it, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and, and you know that he is the authentic true vine to which prophecy points. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament to which the, uh, the Jews were pointed to through all of the, uh, through all of the sacrifices and all of the feast days and, and all of the food and everything they did always Everything pointed to the fact that he's the authentic, real, true vine to which all Scripture points to. The disciples would understand this, and so that's why he uses this imagery. Now let's look at uh, Scripture that's going to tie in with this. And we're going to be looking at Scripture that, that identifies the Jews as the vineyard, Israel, and we're going to see all through this imagery that the uh, that the vine dresser is always, of course, the father. And then we're going to see uh, the son is the one who is sent into the vine dressers, who witnesses to the prophets and is mistreated. All we're going to see all these things in Scripture. Let's look at this. Have a brief tour here, and I also want to look at uh, at uh, the correlation between. Let's look at Mark first of all. Let's look at this correlation. Mark uh, chapter uh, 12, 1 through 9. And then let's see where it comes from. It comes from Isaiah 5, 1 through 5. Austin, would you read Mark 12, 1 through 9? And let's see this. Let's everybody let everybody get to us as we're talking about where Jesus comes up with this concept, this metaphor that I'm the true vine. And he uses it because of agriculture, because it's the Old Testament tie-in, uh, and it's a final uh, understanding uh, to the Jew and to the disciple, the tie-in to Scripture between the Old and the New. Uh, so go ahead and look at Mark uh, uh, 12, 1 through 9. Go ahead. This metaphor, Jesus speaking in a parable to the Pharisees, the guilty party in this. So he said, a, vine, a man, a vine dresser has a, has a vineyard. The vineyard is Israel. The vine dresser is the father. The father sends servants. The servants are the prophets. 
the prophets and those he has sent, the Old Testament prophets, including John the Baptizer. All of these are the prophets that came to forewarn, to talk of Christ. And how did these servants and the prophets and John the Baptist get treated? They were killed, they were disbelieved, and they were, uh, they were treated horribly. And so in this parable, he's talking about the nation of Israel and how the nation of Israel reacted to God sending prophets to them. And their message was faith. Their message was Christ. Their message was look to the Messiah that is coming. Lastly, these Pharisees, these elders, these leaders of Israel, He sent His Son. This is Christ. And how did they react to the sending of the Son? He's the heir and they killed Him. That's wickedness, right? And this would cause them to reflect back to Isaiah 5. So let's do that. Isaiah 5, 1 through 5. The point of this is that Jesus is teaching that His coming is not new. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. It is consistent with the prophecies. And they are accountable that they should have known these things. Look at this great passage in Isaiah 5. And this is going to be the reason why He explains Mark the way He does. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up. He cleared out the stones. He planted it. He built a tower. He made a wine press in it. And he expected it to bring forth grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judge now between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I'm going to take away its protection and it's going to be burned. And we know that it is being burned and it has been burned and it's going to be burned again. And it will be trampled down and I will lay it the waste. And then verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but he got oppression for righteousness. Behold, so we see this imagery of Israel being the vineyard way back 500 years ago, and then we see it again in the Gospel of Mark, and we see this is why Jesus says, I'm the true vine. He's talking about the vineyard. He's talking about I'm the one that the vineyard was about. And so we see that. Everybody understand that? Now let's look at this next one. Luke, and uh, I don't have this in your notes either because I added this this morning. And my thinking. <laughs> and we'll see that this is related to Hosea 9, 10 through 13. And then we see it 10 through 13. And then we see it in this wonderful text on the end times of Matthew 24, verse 32 through 35. Gibberish, Luke 13, 6 through 9, Hosea 9, 10 through 13, and then we're going to see Matthew 24, 32 through 35. Okay, let's look at Luke 13. Again, an analogy to the vineyard. An analogy uh, 
that Christ is going to uh, use as He teaches these great truths. Luke 13, 6 through 9. He spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree. Now these are all very synonymous, meaningful terms. Fig tree in the vineyard. Part of this agricultural metaphor. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and has found none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, cut it down. What does this mean? Fig tree. Before we answer this question, go to Hosea 9. Am I, am I routing you there crazily? Hosea 9. Scripture interprets Scripture. Right? What is he talking about? Isaiah 9, verse 10. Hosea. Okay, so Israel, and he says, Israel, I'm going to equate to a fig tree. So the scripture defines Israel. Israel is the fig tree. I came to the fig tree. Now, let's look at this, Matthew 24. Going to get some good education here, right here. Matthew 24. All of these things are consistent, and they relate, and they teach us. Matthew thirty twenty four thirty two. Learn this parable from the fig tree, which is Israel. When its branch has become tender and put forth leaves, you know summer is near. So you also, when you see these things, what are these things? The great tribulation, the suffering. These things, when you see these things starting to take place, you know that summer is near. When you see these things, it is near at the doors. I say unto you, this generation which sees the fig tree blossoming, which sees these things coming to pass, will by no means pass away till it is taken place. So we see all of this picture of the true vine, and he moves it into more specific terms. Israel is the fig tree. I saw Israel like the fig tree. And he says, when you see the fig tree ripen, the fig tree is ripening, my friends. Everybody understand that Israel is ripening today? It was in desolation for 2,000 years. It became a state The fig tree is starting to bloom. All of the prophecies of the deserts have been changed into fruit fields. And if you've been to Israel, the irrigation, it's magnificent. So I hear. I'm going to wait till I live there for a thousand years to see it, I guess. But anyway, we will. So we see this, this, you see all this picture? I am the true vine to Israel, the fig tree. I look for Israel. I sought Israel out. Israel rebelled. They went and served false gods. 
But there's going to time, be a time when this fig tree is going to bloom again. And when that fig tree blooms again, you're going to know that all these things are about to happen. And so we know from history, from Scripture, that the fig tree is blooming. Okay. So, as we try to go back to this, I'm the true vine. So Jesus is the true vine. We know that. Now, let's talk about this for a second. And I've gone off script. It's okay. Uh, I always do that. That's okay. Everybody know where we are? We understand from this other... When Terry gets to this in 2020... <laughs> 2020, he is going to get to Romans 11. And Romans 11 is talking about the grafting in of the natural branches back to the natural tree. So when he talks about Romans 11, he's going to get into minute detail that God in His grace is going to graft back in the natural branches, which is Israel, back into Christ, right? And then us natural branches, He's grafted in too, right? So He's going to talk about this. This is all all part of this fact that He's the true vine. Okay, so that's just a little bonus when Terry gets to that. He will explain what you are, uh, your eyes are rolling when I'm talking about it. And then this one verse I want to look at before I leave this. Psalm 80. Somebody look up Psalm 80. Psalm 80, 9 through 16. Psalm 80, 9 through 16. And I'm going to write this one on the board, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to read it. Isaiah 27, 2 through 6. Great verses to, to Selah, chew on. Psalm 80. Uh, verse 9 through 16, Psalm 80. So we see a prayer from the psalmist to restore the vine that you have. And then the last verse says, Restore, O Israel. So we see all of this should be familiar to the disciples, to the Jews that he's preaching to. He came to the Jew first. And it is beneficial for us. So everybody understand all this correlation as we sort of chase this rabbit a bit. Uh, and then we look, look at this at the text now. Uh, before you get cheated in time here. Uh, Jesus is a true vine. We see this agricultural term. My father is a vine dresser. And what does the vine dresser do in the next verse? He prunes, but what does he do before he prunes? 
He examines it. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. So he does two things. He takes away and he prunes. Now, it is erroneously believed. Some take this verse, he takes away the branches that is in me. They say those are believers that lose their salvation. That is not correct. Scripture never in, uh, never contradicts itself. So when it says you can't be plucked out of the Father's hands, when it says uh, uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God, if you are truly in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. Everybody understand that? If you say I said anything different, I didn't. He takes away. This word, he takes away, literally means God discerns between real believers and professors. And the, and the professors, God knows who they are, and he takes them out of the way. And what is the most specific thing he's talking about that happened 30 minutes ago? Judas Iscariot, a professor, one of the disciples, he takes him out of the way. He was a professor of faith, but he was not a, he was not a saved, called, saved, reconciled person. And so when it says the Father does two things, he, he distinguishes between real Christians and fake Christians, and the fake Christians he takes away, and we see many verses to support this. Look at 1 John 2.16, and let's look at Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. And we can look at, uh, I think these are, again, verses that I didn't put down in the original. When he takes it away, we cannot lose our salvation. This is not talking about true believers that God the Father takes away. And then later, he explains what he means by taking away. But look at verse 6. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and thrown into the fire and they are burned. So this can't be talking about believers because believers as branches, if they are real believers, are not burned in the fire, right? Everybody understand that? So he's talking about professing Christians who uh, will explain it by these verses. 1 John 2.16, we've quoted this many times. This is again John as revelation from the Spirit. Quite frankly, because of his uh, experience, perhaps, of Judas Iscariot and others, we see this. Uh, it's actually 2.19, excuse me. You probably wonder what the world was 2.16, 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Professing believers. God understands these folks. He knows their hearts and he takes them away. Let's camp out on this verse a bit. Keith, as he always does. Remember, he did an excellent teaching on Hebrews it's been almost five years ago. But if you were here, you probably don't remember. So let's look at Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. 
this concept that the father as the vine dresser, as the tiller, as the gardener, he takes away and burns those who are professors of faith but aren't really in order that the true believers may bloom and blossom. Look at this. 6.4 It is not possible. Hebrews 6.4 It is not possible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Spirit and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify for themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. I still have my notes. So you're lucky. This is Keith in his, in his teaching. We see this. Once enlightened, tasting partakers. They have associated with believers. They have seen the Holy Spirit working, but they themselves have not been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They have been in, they have been nearby fellow believers. They've seen all the prayers answered. They've seen God's work in their hearts. But they themselves have not been indwelt and saved by the Spirit through grace, right? They've been in in union, associated with. They have had some... They have seen some uh, revelation of God. They've seen it through these through these believers, but they themselves have not experienced it. Almost persuaded, as Paul would tell, is, is Herod, was it Herod that said, I'm almost persuaded? I can't remember in Acts. Uh, does everybody understand that? They're associated with, but they're not. They, there's, and Keith said, this is a pre-conversion work. They are influenced, but they are not with. God, discerner, He takes away those who have an appearance, but they are not really His. Questions? Are y'all asking? Are y'all talking amongst us? What do you think? Do everybody understand what this means? And only God knows. We don't know who these people are, but God does. Yes, they are. That's right, and that's starting to come out. This is going through the motion. These are the tares and the wheat. He allows the tares to to tarry with the wheat. And you remember the parable, can we take out... No, don't take out the tares because you may hurt some wheat. So you let the two grow together, and the angels in the end days are going to do the separating, okay? This is the uh, parable of the seeds, Okay, let's look at that. Matthew 13, all your parables. Matthew 13. And we see Jesus talk about four or five different types of soils that the Word of God is planted on. And only one soil is genuine, God-prepared heart to accept the Word. And that's the one that bears the fruit 30, 60, 90. But look at this. This is what it's talking about. He takes away. He's a discerner of the heart. And this is Matthew 13. And then this is the sower and the seed parable if you're writing these down. So we see all these different types of soil. This, the one the Father takes away, soil number uh, 
really number, the first one is easy. They fell by the wayside. The birds came, devoured. We see nothing obviously happens. The second and third one seem to be genuinely Christian from the outset. Look at the second one. Uh, verse 5, 13. Some fell on stony places where they didn't have much earth and they immediately sprang up. But because they had no depth of earth, when the sun came up and scorched, they had no root, they withered away. That's, that's, uh, that's soil number two. Soil number three, some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Okay, so they initially grow and look good. But look at how Jesus explains these soils. Look over to 13, 13, 20. Jesus is going to explain his parable to the disciples. These are the folks that the Father takes away who have an appearance of righteousness but are not truly saved. Verse 20, stony ground heart. This is who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Not a believer, had the appearance of one for a while. Here's the thorns, verse 22. The thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. So we see these type of soils, these are those who profess Christ but fall away and don't ultimately endure to the end. Does everybody understand what I'm talking about Father distinguishes as a vine dresser, and he knows legitimate from illegitimate, and he will one day separate the two. Everybody know that? Now, the pruning is for the true believer. And what? why do you prune your rose bushes? Why do you prune your oak? Whatever you've got, why do you do that? That's right. To make it look like the image they bear. So we understand that the work of the Father is to prune us so that we can grow better and not to be so entangled with all these little top-heavy shoots that go vertical instead of spreading out nice and strong and give the tree strength. We all understand that. We do that to our trees. I just did it to my, uh, uh, to my, uh, whatever they are. I haven't done those yet, but I, I I do that to my sages. I do that to my uh, uh, what are my what are, crepe myrtles? There we go. You, you get them down to the. So that's what the father does. He prunes us because he wants us to produce more fruit. And how does he prune us? He prunes us through trials. We read that verse. The strengthening of the faith is through trials and tribulations and through perseverance and discipline. That's the one we don't like to talk about. But that's how he prunes us. And the context is that, of course, is 12. And I think it starts uh, 3. And I think it goes through... uh, Pruning, uh, yeah, 11 through 11. So when we, you have time, when you get home or whenever you want to do this, look at how God prunes us. 
He does it through pain, and it's not pleasurable, but it is purposeful and it is temporary, and it is that we may be humbled before Him, and we may see the error of our way, that we would confess our sins and turn to Him. And He disciplines us in love for the purpose of restoring us and encouraging us in the faith, right? It's not pleasant, but it's purposeful. And God the Father, as a vine dresser, prunes us through these means. Does everybody understand? And we are not to, and we are not to complain when we are disciplined, because whom the Father loves, He disciplines. And if you are not disciplined, you are a bastardo. I get to use the word we talked about the other day. You are not a legitimate son if the Father doesn't discipline you. Because He disciplines all of those He loves. All of us have been disciplined. And all of us have been corrected by the discipline. And that is the pruning work of the vine dresser. Everybody get this? Pretty simple, but very, very, very intense and very, very deep. But the Father performs this function. Now, yes. Yes, he does. We're very capable, right? Yes. Consequences. And that is that very good evidence that you are His when you worry about that. If you did not worry about that, that would be a bad sign, Gene. Thank you. Good. And who, what role, and what person of the Godhead does that sealing work? There you go. You, you farmers and, and agronomists and, and fruit tenders know these things and they come alive to you. And everybody in Israel would understand that because it was an agrarian society. So he speaks to them in these terms. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So we see that. And now let's look at this. This fruit, we see this mentioned over and over and over again. So we have to ask ourselves the proverbial question. What is fruit? Fruit. What is it? He's pruning us that we would bear fruit. The fruit 
evidence that we are His. He's glorified in the production of fruit. The fruit is produced by being engrafted and and being in union with Christ. The Holy Spirit is the energy, the electricity that produces the fruit. And so Gene says, one evidence or one example of fruit is works. We see... From this verse, we all know what that verse is. That It's been foreordained that we would do works as evidence that we've been saved by grace through faith. The works don't save us, but they give the evidence that the faith is genuine. Also, what else do we know about works? And we've got that uh, Titus. This whole book is is talks about... Uh, works and how works give evidence of salvation. So turn to Titus with me. So this is one fruit that the Holy Spirit bears in us that the Father will prune so that it produces it in us. And this is, uh, let's look at Titus 2, 7 through 8. Look at verse 14 and then look at chapter 3, uh, verse 1, 8. And 14. And I have a feeling that that's going to be... No, that's not right. 2, 7, and 8, Titus. Read that for me. 2, 7, and 8, Titus. And think... Okay, the works or the good deeds, one of the purposes of that is so that our adversaries will not be able to speak against us because we are in Christ and we are producing these good deeds. Who's got 3.1 and 3.8 and 3.14 of Titus? Mm-hmm. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So we're devoted to good works and we are not unfruitful. So we see that works are an example of the fruit the Holy Spirit is burying us as we are attached to Christ the vine. So we see that's one of them. What is another fruit? And one other fruit is internal attitudes. And we see that from uh, 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 Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control, faith. So that is internal attribute, internal Attitudes produced by the Holy Spirit and dwelling in us that are not natural to us, but that the Holy Spirit bears in us. None of us love. None of us have natural joy. None of us have this peace we talked about without the work of the Spirit. And that is the opposite of the flesh, which is envy, 
carousing, all these things. So, the Father is glorified when His Holy Spirit produces this in us. And a good checkpoint is, are you becoming more Christ-like? Are you walking worthy? And is your internal attitudes changing as you progress? And you can only answer that, or your spouse can. Praise is a fruit. Look at Hebrews 13.15. Somebody look up Hebrews 13.15. Praise, we don't think about that one, is a fruit. We're doing all things to give thanks. And it is not a natural inclination of a hard-hearted dead person to be praising the Creator and the Lord. Who's got 13.15? Praise. This is the, as Romans 12, 1 would say, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship. Praise is a fruit of the Spirit and is a reasonable part of worship. As we get it. Right? And then one that most people consider this to be the only fruit. uh, Righteous behavior. To live rightly. Let me look up Philippians 1.11. This is the uh, a prayer I'm praying for my home group and have been doing for a while. But Paul prayed for his home group. He prayed for the church at Philippi that they would do this. Who's got 1.11 Philippians? So he prayed that the church at Philippi would do works of righteousness. And there is a list of those and uh, for time. And then lastly, we're going to see that fruit is evangelistic. And it is leading people to Christ. Okay? There is a, a sense in this. And we see that in many spots. But if you look at Romans 13 through 16, Paul said... Fruit is those who've come to Christ through His ministry. And so, I ask me and I ask you, is the Holy Spirit producing this in you? And if it is, that is evidence that is God working in you and He is glorified in that. Right? What other explanation could it be that old Gene would bear fruit? Or Rusty, of all people, would bear fruit? Or me would bear fruit? Or Ron back there, incognito? Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And only through the Spirit. And this is the examining we do of ourselves. And this is how we make sure of our calling and election. We think in our mirrors, we think, is God doing this in me? Is there tangible evidence of this and this and this? Never have we going to come to perfection in this old flesh. But He is progressing us. And there has to be some evidence That He is doing this in us. And it is different in each one of us. And the process is different in each one of us. And the spot we are is different. And He works in each one of us differently. But there is a 
there is a clear demonstration that He is doing this in us. Okay? His design is, is peculiar to each individual believer. It is. It is. And so we can't get frustrated when name whomever is not progressing quite as good as you are. Yes, sir? Uh huh. Matthew 13. Okay. It's the true believer, as Rusty's pointing out, 1323, as, as Sally just said, it's specific and unique to each one of us. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. God has given some of us five talents, some of us two talents, and some of us one talent. We are responsible for the talent God has given us. We all can't be Billy Graham. We're not all Paul's. But we all have a talent given to us by God, and we're not to bury it, but we are to reinvest it into kingdom life. Okay? And uh, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to finish the words roll in fruit bearing next week, and then I'm going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit specifically, some things we haven't covered. So... Have a great Thanksgiving. Remember who you are in Christ. Look for opportunities to bear fruit. And be safe in your travels. Yes, ma'am. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I appreciate your support. Anybody want to pray for us before we leave?